This is Due South, broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. Hello, I'm Jeff Tabiri. Today, Leandro. If you know, you know. And if you're unfamiliar with the decades-old case, that's okay, because you're about to get a crash course from a number of smart people who have tracked Leandro for years. This is a case about education, inequity, separation of powers, and constitutional conundrums. Leandro is back before the state Supreme Court this week, and in a bit, we'll get to what's at stake. Also later in our conversation, you'll hear voices with a range of ideological views about what they're advocating for. But first, a reporter and a former judge help us frame up Leandro. Andos Helms is an education reporter with public radio station WFAE in Charlotte, and Bob Orr served on the state Supreme Court from 1995 until 2004. And Bob, welcome to Due South. I'm happy to be here, Jeff. Yeah, good morning. Glad to be here. And this case was filed 30 years ago. We'll get to the present day issues in a little bit, but let's roll it back first. Who brought this case and why? Well, to really roll it back, the the backdrop was that there were a number of states that were seeing lawsuits over educational funding. And for a while, it looked like North Carolina was going to avoid that because they passed a basic education plan and agreed to provide some extra funding for counties that didn't have a lot of a tax base to supplement the state funding. So things were looking good until the promises were not kept. This is, and I am relying heavily on other people's reporting here because I've been covering education since 2002. This predates me. I got to say the homework on this was daunting. (laughs) I do understand why nobody can keep up with this. But um, in 1994, we did get a lawsuit filed by five low wealth school districts, Hoke, Halifax, Robeson, Vance, and Cumberland. And they said that the state was essentially providing a flat amount per pupil. If you have 100 students, you get $100, 10,000, you get $10,000. And they said that may be great in these bigger counties where they can supplement that, but we cannot meet the constitutional obligation that is in the state's constitution to provide a sound basic education. And a few months after that, several six um, large urban districts, including mm-hmm. Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools, jumped in and said, oh, hold up there. Because we may have a large tax base, but we also have huge numbers of kids. And the, the term of art at the time was at-risk kids. And it was never clearly defined, but everything from poverty, not speaking English fluently, disabilities, race, things that tended to correspond with lower outcomes. So the, the six urban districts said, we want in too, because we also think there needs to be a new funding formula. Quick follow-up for you and Das Helms joining us in Charlotte as we get into Leandro. What were you doing professionally in 1994, if you don't mind us asking? Were you a reporter at that time? Were you in North Carolina at that time? Because as you know, this litigation predates predates your time on the education beat. I was, I was a reporter. I believe I was in the features department um, at the Charlotte Observer, and I was working on a team that was education and family issues. So I was watching this from a distance, but it wasn't really, and I think this is true for most of the state, the developments have been so slow and so indecisive, and there will be years when it goes silent. So I think most of us kind of, even in the education realm, had a sense that there was something called Leandro, but it wasn't mm. front and center. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, Judge Orr, five counties brought this suit, as Anne mentioned, uh, Hoke, Halifax, Robison, Vance, and Cumberland. Tell us a little bit more about these five largely rural counties and why they were the five to bring it and, and how that factors into all this as we think about the beginning. Well, let me say, I have been there from the beginning. Uh, I was uh, on the Supreme Court when it first came up. And yes, the five low-wealth counties uh, in the eastern part of the state initially brought the suit. 
their concerns were that their tax bases were so low, and local governments are required to appropriate about 20% of the overall budget, but that they had such low tax bases that their ability to actually uh, build state-of-the-art schools, provide science labs for the kids to have updated books, and to compete with larger counties over the uh, uh, supplements for teachers uh, put them at a decided disadvantage. And, And the complaint was that the state's funding system violated the constitutional rights of these uh, these students, and that uh, there was a remedy for the state to to step in and do something. And the state had created this low wealth funding package, but it was woefully inadequate to address address those. I, I think that the and, and you know I got to talk as a lawyer, not as a reporter, uh, and and I. The theory, really, that the plaintiffs argued was that uh, a provision in the state constitution calling for equal opportunity for the students mandated that that kids in low-wealth counties ought to get just as good an education uh, as kids in Wake County or Orange County, Mecklenburg County. However, that theory rested on money. Mm-hmm. And the the Supreme Court, when it got the case, was hellbent, or at least the majority, was determined they were not going to go down a funding path sure. in answering the question. Uh, so they, <clears throat> they decided under the decision written by Chief Justice Mitchell that there was this qualitative constitutional right to an opportunity for a sound basic education and explained it. I did dissent in part because I thought the equal opportunity uh, theory applied sure. and frankly would have been the, the simpler resolution. So let me jump in a little bit. There's many moving parts of this. And yeah. as a reminder to myself and us and our listeners, what we're going to do is try to walk through this as kind of succinctly and basically as as we can. Uh, so you were on the Court of Appeals. You were a judge in the Court of Appeals, and then you won election to the state Supreme Court in right. 1994. And this Leandro litigation uh, first elevates to the state Supreme Court in 1997. You have noted the the constitutional provision that much of this hinges on, which is a sound basic education. You talk about the ruling in 1997, Judge Orr. You dissented in part, but let's stick with the ruling out of okay. 1997. Uh, what did the court say needed to happen or ought to happen? What was effectively the ruling uh, from that first visit to the state Supreme Court 20-some-odd years ago? Well, and I, th- I think this is critical to understand the mess that we're in now, and that is there are two aspects to litigation. One is the substantive law. And in that context, the, the North Carolina Supreme Court held that there was a constitutional right to an opportunity for a sound basic education. There's also the procedural posture of a case, how it moves forward, the theories. Uh, And the case came to the North Carolina Supreme Court the first time on a decision by the Court of Appeals to dismiss the case. In essence, the state's argument was, hey, the only thing kids are entitled to are a book, a classroom, and a teacher, and that's it. Uh, And and so the, uh, the decision at the Supreme Court, articulated this standard, 
but it was at the very, very beginning of litigation. It was a motion to dismiss. And so when the, the Supreme Court in 1997 said, no, you have a viable claim. Now you got to go back to trial. Uh, Chief Justice uh, Mitchell appointed Judge Howard Manning as the 2.1 judge to manage the litigation. And at that point, that's really when the case began under the umbrella of Leandro One and the opportunity for a sound basic education. And, Os Helms, between 1997 and 2004, there is this, I'll call it the remedy period, uh, but ultimately things were, were not remedied, and a lower court ruled that the state was not providing this sound basic education. And in 2004, Court of Appeals ordered that, or a lower court ordered that every classroom would have a certified teacher and every school a well-trained principal, along with necessary resources to support instructional programs. Now, this ruling was appealed back to the state Supreme Court, where the justices, uh, of, of which uh, Justice Bob Orr was one of, upheld the lower court ruling. But if you would, go second level for us, Ann, and then we'll pivot to, to Justice Orr here in a second. Uh, how significant and important was this ruling in 2004, and um, what transpired from this? Yeah, and, you know, I am so glad we have somebody here who really understands the legal system, because I am, again, flying more at the, what does this mean, and to me, the one thread that connects this, and it has been all over the board, there was talk about per-pupil funding, equity versus equality, pre-kindergarten, early childhood, at-risk students, high-quality teachers, high-quality principals. But the real thread that connects all of this is what is the connection between funding and academic outcomes or opportunity? And clearly it is not a direct linear, you know, it, I don't think anybody would argue if you spend 20% more, you will get 20% better results. But I think it's also disingenuous to say there's no relationship. You know, money doesn't matter. So there's been kind of so Judge Howard Manning, as Justice Orr pointed out, laid out quite a few things that he said were needed and really kind of ordered some emphasis on pre-kindergarten and some action on pre-kindergarten. And I will tell you that um, I was looking through the Observer's archives and the first Leandro article with my byline on it was in 2004. And we were writing about that second Supreme Court ruling and we confidently wrote that the ruling ends a 10-year court battle, according to state officials and education experts. So that was 20 years ago. So um, take any of my interpretations with a grain of salt. <laughs> but, but it was a big deal at the time. We, but we knew that this was not the final answer, that it was, it's one thing to say a great teacher in every classroom. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to make that happen. Ends the legal drama 10 years uh, Ten years in, of course, it has been two more decades since, and there is still not a conclusion. This Leandro case is back before the state Supreme Court uh, later this week. We're going to talk about this with our panel as we're just getting started here on Due South. We're speaking with Ann Das Helms, education reporter with public radio station WFAE, former education reporter at the Charlotte Observer, as well as Bob Orr. He was an associate justice on the state Supreme Court from 1995 until 2004 and heard uh, two uh, significant uh, Cases or instances or one significant case, Leandro, as it elevated to the state Supreme Court. Ahead, we're going to welcome in uh, several guests with uh, progressive and conservative uh, organizations to help us better understand uh, the Leandro case and what is being asked for. This is Due South on WUNC.
Welcome back. It's Due South on WUNC. We're spending the hour on Leandro, the most notable education litigation in North Carolina history. It's a case that is still active after it was filed some 30 years ago this May. The case lands before the North Carolina Supreme Court this week, again, with the potential for major implications, as well as more chapters, potentially, of uncertainty, or maybe, just maybe, finality in this Leandro saga. We've been speaking with Ann Doss Helms, reporter at WFA Charlotte, uh, and also Bob Orr, former associate justice on the state Supreme Court. We're now joined in studio by Mitch Kokai, senior political analyst at the conservative John Locke Foundation, Jeff Coltrane, senior policy advisor to Governor Roy Cooper, and Marcus Bass, deputy director of NC Black Alliance and member of the Coordinating Committee for Every Child NC, a project of the Progressive NC Justice Center. Welcome to Do South, y'all. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right. We were chatting about 2004 uh, before the break. And Judge Orr, you wrote the opinion in 2004 that um, called for some further specificity about how a sound basic education was to be uh, provided. Let's go again, top level, 5,000. <laughs> this is so complicated, but I, tell I us a little bit about the ruling, please. Well, well yeah, here you have to understand the process. So after it was sent back from the Supreme Court to the trial level, uh, you've got two groups of plaintiffs, the five low-wealth counties and the five high-wealth counties. How are you going to try that case? So it was decided that by Judge Manning to bifurcate the low-wealth from the high-wealth. And then he would, they decided that they would take one low-wealth county and use that, uh, in essence, as a as the uh, test case or representative low-wealth county, mm-hmm. and Hope County was chosen. So for the course of 18 months, not consecutively, but uh, during this period of time, Judge Manning conducted an extensive trial in which thousands of documents and pages of testimony were taken. And out of this comes like a 400-page order that is now appealed up to the Supreme Court. And there, there's some confusion. I understand the parties can't agree on whether the current case is the Leandro 4 or Hope County 3, uh, you know, what, whatever it is. They're all <laughs> Leandro slash Hope, okay? So, so what was stunning about what had happened was that we, we had started with this argument about the disparity in the funding between low wealth and high wealth counties. The Hope County decision literally only dealt with whether at-risk pre-K students had a right to an opportunity for a sound basic education. Just to be clear, this isn't K through 12. This is at-risk pre-K students. That's yes, a, that is yes. a, it's an important but narrow uh, sect of the, the public school population. It, Keep going, it is, but if you'll recall, those of you old enough from that period of time, Governor Hunt had started his Mort 4 program to try and help at-risk pre-K kids. Governor Easley had used his more at four, uh, I guess it was... The pre-K initiative. Smart Start. Smart Start was Governor Governor Hunt. Hunt. Yeah, and and then Governor Easley had his more at four program. But but what all the statistics and evidence at that trial showed was that kids coming from disadvantaged families, uh, when they got to the mandatory public school uh, kindergarten stage, they were so far behind compared to other children that they were uh, they really never had a chance to get uh, the sound basic education. And so 
it, it was really a, a shock, not shocking, but surprising hard turn in where the litigation went. It wasn't about the overall school funding. It wasn't about the overall educational system in the state. The Hoke County decision was about at-risk pre-K kids. Mm-hmm. And the decision reflects that. And then, and we affirm for the most part what Judge Manning had found in his hundreds of pages mm-hmm. order. Mm-hmm. But he had ordered a mandatory statewide pre-K program. And the Supreme Court said, "No, you're you're ahead of the head of the uh, the game here. You need to give the General Assembly a chance to address uh, a remedy for what we have now determined is a violation of the constitutional rights of at-risk pre-K students. They are they are not being served. And and basic civics here. Please, anybody jump in if I'm missing it. But it's the legislature has the power of the purse." The, the judiciary cannot appropriate, cannot order that the legislature appropriate, uh, or they can order it, but that, then we have a constitutional question. Uh, and Das Helms, it is at this point in the early 2000s that uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg County Schools has an elevated place in all of this litigation and in this, this saga. Please tell us a little bit more about how Judge Manning at the time utilized, leaned on, implemented, however you want to size it up, Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools. Right. And this is, again, there are more plot twists in this than um, any, any soap opera because there had been this intense focus on pre-K. And in fact, Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools was doing a lot with pre-K in addition to the state. But um, in about 2004, Judge Manning shifted his focus to Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools and particularly to low performance in some of the high poverty high schools. And he went through a series of reports, memos, letters, Uh, notoriously said that these schools were committing academic genocide because their students were performing so poorly, threatened to close up to 12 of CMS's large high schools, uh, but never ultimately did anything. And again, this was so much detail was playing out that we're going to stay out of. But um, essentially, he said he was looking back at that ruling and said, you know, I am not supposed to go in and say, do this and this before I prompt people. So he essentially said he was trying really hard to get the attention of CMS to say, you've got a problem there. And in fairness, Charlotte Mecklenburg schools did have a problem. There was very poor performance in a lot of the high schools, but ultimately it fell to Charlotte Mecklenburg schools to deal with that. And in the meantime, Charlotte Mecklenburg schools became not just a plaintiff, but a defendant because we had uh, people filing briefs from the UNC Center for Civil Rights, the famous uh, civil rights lawyer Julius Chambers tried to intervene based on a student assignment thing that was going on in CMS. And I will not try to go into that, but it not now. led but yeah. <laughs> to resegregation of schools. And he said, hey, why don't we throw that into Leandro? And ultimately they said, no, we're not going to. But then some others, including the Charlotte Mecklenburg NAACP said, yeah, but this low high school performance, we want to intervene in that. So it got even more complicated during these next few years. It did not, it was not over. So we've gone from 30 years to 20 years uh, ago. And at this point, it seems to me as though there is a problem in the implementation. Who holds the power? How is some of this, uh, how is the remedy going to be implemented? And who holds the authority? Who has the teeth, so to speak, uh, to kind of implement this? Um, Jeff Coltrane, uh, advisor from for uh, Governor Roy Cooper, if you would take it from there, this this issue that is emerging 20 years ago, it seems 
the messiness is just getting messier at this point. Is that a fair way of looking at it? I I, I think so. And one one thing I'll point out that uh, to Anne and Justice Orr is that in response both to the 2004 Supreme Court ruling and Judge Manning's findings on the high schools, Governor Easley created the Disadvantaged Student Supplemental Fund, which then the General Assembly passed into law that provides funding for at-risk students in K-12 schools that was intended to be supplemental to the, the start that the pre-K program was supposed to provide. Um, so from 2004 till uh, 2015 or so, Judge Manning was overseeing the case, continued to hold hearings, continued to have findings. Uh, the state made uh, significant investments in the pre-K program and disadvantaged student supplemental funding and other areas. Um, and in 2015, shortly before uh, he retired, uh, Judge Manning said that the state needs to come up with a systemic plan for how it's going to address these constitutional violations. And that's where we sort of start the process of where we are today. Um, Governor Cooper joined together with the plaintiffs in the case in 2017 and said, let's come up with a plan for what the state can do. And so the court appointed an independent consultant, which was Wested. The governor appointed a commission. Um, and in 2021, based on both the findings from Wested mm -hmm. and from the commission, uh, the state presented to uh, the court, uh, the comprehensive remedial plan. And that sort of takes us to the beginning of where we are today. The, yes, the beginning of where we are today. So this systemic plan, this outside consultant, West Ed from California, effectively orders uh, or recommends that the legislature spend, I believe it's northward of $6 billion in additional education funding. 5.6. 5.6. Thank you. Um, Marcus and, and Mitch, I want to work you guys in here uh, right now. Marcus, uh, tell us what then happened. So uh, outside consultant says... Uh, additional billions are needed for public education funding, and the legislature follows how? Well, quite simply, they didn't just address the larger number. They prescribed specifically in the West Ed report which communities in public education are the most at risk. Uh, I think from the outside looking in, you would think that this is a question along the lines of race or even just geography. But when we talk about individuals with disabilities that are going through our school system, when we talk about uh, the number of individuals that are not receiving services based on the geographical area, it's not just about race. There is a lot of individuals that are being harmed that were identified specifically in the West Ed report. And so one of the things that we were very shocked around, North Carolina Black Alliance Justice Center, Every Child Allies, is the fact that you have practitioners in the space that have seen 30 years of a return decision around upholding the constitutional mandate, but quite frankly, the General Assembly seems to be negligent and wanting to respond directly with the dollars in the midst of a billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar surplus in the state. And so despite uh, three different rulings from the Supreme Court, um, what we see in effect now is the overtaking of a judiciary and then the insertion of another measure to rehear the case for now a fourth time uh, to have this decision when we clearly see the opportunity, we clearly have the research, we just don't have the willpower of our state leaders to meet that constitutional mandate. Marcus uses the word negligent there. I want to just drop in a little bit of context and then turn to you, Mitch Kokai, which is uh, a lot of people would agree that the legislature has not met the funding recommendations or orders, be it from the state Supreme Court or from West Ed, this consultant from uh, across the country. And I, the context I want to just drop in here to, to remind listeners is that for much of this case, from 1994 until early 2011, Democrats ran the legislature. And for the last 13 years, it is Republicans who have run the legislature. So both parties have effectively not done uh, 
what they could have done from a funding perspective. But Mitch, I want to turn to you. Um, give us the conservative. Uh, give us the conservative viewpoint on on much of this, because to me, I synthesize it as a lot of it has to do with separation of powers. And presently, lawmakers are not happy that they have been told to spend X number of dollars because they don't like being told to, to do that. They think that that is their 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 power. Correct. Yes, Leandro has a bunch of different elements. One is, is the state spending enough money on education? Is it spending money on the right things for education? That is a political debate that's going to be ongoing. I think long after this case is over, if it ever ends, people are still going to be debating whether North Carolina spends enough money and spends it in the right way on education. What has really cropped up in the most recent uh, pieces of the Leandro case that has been of concern is how this case has gone about trying to get extra money for education beyond what has been passed. We've made reference to the fact that Governor Cooper's administration and the plaintiffs agreed under the, the new judge, who was da- the late now David Lee, uh, to, to come up with a plan. They hired the consultant, West Ed, came up with this comprehensive plan. The legislature really didn't have any input in this plan, even though they're the bankers. And so they were not part of the process. It was basically representing the state, the governor's office, and representing the plaintiffs, the lawyers for the plaintiffs, coming up with this, with this deal. And then an order was passed from Judge Lee that said in November of 2021, you need to spend an extra $1.75 billion on items that are included in the second and third year of this multi-year plan that have not yet been funded. And at the time that he put forward that order, there had been a standoff on the budget. And so we hadn't had a new state budget for a couple of years. Eight, Eight days after that order, the budget was finished and was signed into law by Governor Cooper, which addressed more than a billion dollars of the $1.75 billion. That's why some of the money that's still outstanding is not that $1.75 billion figure. So from the legislature's perspective, they have two concerns. One, we haven't been part of this process at all, and you're you're talking about spending money when that's the legislature's job. And then the second piece, which isn't even going to be addressed probably in the hearing that's coming up, mm-hmm. the next hearing is, can a judge order executive branch officials to move money without any appropriation. That is a big piece of this. I want to turn to Jeff Coulter in a moment, but briefly, Judge Orr, is that something that the judiciary can do? Is that something, maybe just let's let's widen the lens here, is that something the judiciary has done on a, on occasion, be it maybe something else, an environmental issue, uh, something unrelated to education? Well, the judiciary has historically entered judgments against the state or some agency of the state and then imposed a remedy which might include a requirement for the expenditure of monies. The the huge challenge, and this is all about procedure in this case, is whether the settlement that took place really was based on anything other than a willingness of of the governor and the, uh, the plaintiffs to get this thing over and done with. Because there is there has never been a finding by any trial judge that the entire state system of education is in violation of the Leandro standard. 
Uh, are there problems across the state? Yes. Uh, but but there there is this very limited definitive decisions at the trial level and at the Supreme Court level. And, and it's leapt from the... Uh, the five initial counties plus y- the five larger urban y- counties. Right. And as a reminder, we have 100 counties in this state. Correct. So just to mirror it back to you, and you and I have talked about this yeah. before in, in some of the, just in previous years, this case made something of a jump from yes. five or 10 counties to 100 counties. I right. mean, Person County and, and Forsyth County, these are not named uh, parties or counties within this suit. So that has further complicated yes, all this. Very, very much so. And I think that really, when you talk about the, the amount of money West Ed proposed, you know, there's a difference between here's what you ought to do and here's what you have to do. And in order for a court to tell government you have to do this, there has to be a clear, at least in my mind, a clear violation of those constitutional rights. And that's been determined in a limited fashion, but I'm not sure it's been determined on a statewide basis. Jeff? So... Judge Lee, who was overseeing the case after Judge Manning retired and appointed the independent consultant, um, looked at Westhead's findings, which found that there was an inadequate education provided for all children across the state. Um, And so that's the findings that he incorporated into his orders and that led to the November um, order that Mitch mentioned earlier. Um, The the other thing I'll point out that Westhead found was Uh, Not that North Carolina was doing things wrong. Um, Actually, most of our education system is set up correctly. We're providing targeted funds for at-risk students. We've got a great pre-K program. We have fantastic schools of education, uh, education, educating teachers. We just weren't doing enough of those things. We weren't serving enough pre-K students. We weren't providing enough funding for our students with disabilities, for our students from low-income families. And that's what the plan is really targeted at, is um, making the investments that they found were necessary. The last thing I'll point out around um, how the the case went from those five low wealth to the state as a whole, Mm -hmm. um, Judge Manning found that, you know, there's not just at-risk students in Hope County. There's at-risk students in every county around the state, like you pointed out in Charlotte, um, that they mentioned that. Mm -hmm. And our state constitution calls for a general and uniform system of education that is provided with the funding that's necessary. And the Supreme Court actually, from that November 2020 order, found in November of 2022, just before the 2022 elections, that indeed the courts can uh, um, allocate funding because the right that's been violated is a constitutional right. And the Constitution calls for adequate funding for our our children to receive a sound basic education. Mitch, 30 seconds, then I got to take a break. Well, I wanted to mention that based on what uh, Judge Orr was just saying, the the issue that's actually in front of the state Supreme Court right now is subject matter jurisdiction. That's it. They are saying, to, as they are dealing with this, did the trial judge have the right to come up with this statewide remedy or not? A couple of justices seem to say yes. The others, we're not sure. Coming up, now what? We're going to talk a little bit more about the details of this case, uh, or the latest case, the hearing that is back before North Carolina's High Court later uh, this week. We're chatting here on Due South with Bob Orr, former Associate Justice of the State Supreme Court, Jeff Coltrane, Senior Education Advisor uh, for Governor Roy Cooper, and Doss Helms, Education Reporter at WFAE, and Marcus Bass with the NC Justice Center. We're back in a moment on Due South. 
This is listener-supported Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri, joined on today's program by a panel of guests helping you to better understand, we sure hope, the Leandro case, a 1994 lawsuit all about the right to a sound, basic public education. It's a case with many twists and turns that is back before the state Supreme Court this week. Here, helping us better understand are Andos Helms, Bob Orr, Mitch Kokai, Jeff Coltrane, and Marcus Bass. I'm going to turn to each of you. This isn't fair, but I'm going to do it because we do have a little bit of time here. I want one word from each of you that best summarizes this case. Just one word. Marcus? Sound. Jeff? Opportunity. Chaos. (laughs) I would uh, echo chaos. Mitch (laughs) echoes Bob's chaos. Andos Helms, one word. Complex. Complex. Okay. All good words. Just trying to maybe, uh, I don't know, elevate up for a moment to that uh, 5,000-foot view here. Um. Marcus Bass, we were talking previously about uh, both the individual nature of this case as it pertains to, you know, a handful of North Carolina's 100 counties. And you were just making a point during the break about uh, the counterpoint to that. So please, if you would, there are 100 counties in North Carolina, correct? Absolutely. And I I think it makes sense that uh, six counties in particular 30 years ago decided to step up and say that there was a problem. We knew then that the harm was not just in those six counties alone. And at the end of the day, those six plaintiffs represented a larger swath of North Carolina, actually the entire system, if you will, which is why not just in 94, but in the 2000s, we expanded the number of plaintiffs. And I think when you look at now this narrowing or this now trying to contract or restrict back to, you know, the six original counties really lacks an understanding of what North Carolina is. North Carolina is not uh, isolated counties. We are a contiguous state. Um, We work in one part of the county or live in another part of the county and learning happens, you know, county by county. In some cases, individuals don't even receive uh, news in Raleigh. They have to receive their news from Virginia, South Carolina, other parts in between. And so this spillover impact directly in the 100 counties and this conversation around whether or not we should have a narrow remedy or an expansive remedy is really not uh, addressing the real harm of what is happening when we deny a sound basic education and the impact, regardless of whether or not we want to identify it, the fact that Rob Leandro actually uh, had an experience outside of uh, the original Hope County and then with that experience came to Hope County, saw the disparity. That is exactly why it is not just a, a six county system. It shouldn't be looked at as a six county remedy or solution. It's 100 counties that are impacted when we are negligent in providing that sound basic education. Rob Leandro, that of course is the, the Leandro name here in this case. He was an eighth grader in Hope County when this litigation was filed all 30, uh, way back 30 years ago. He is today uh, a partner at the law firm Parker Poe. And he occasionally speaks publicly on this. He has a set of times it is time to, to fund schools out but of course, as you noted before, this is a chaotic and complex issue. So just to give you a note on Rob Leandro, I'm sure he has many more thoughts than that. But, but Judge Orr, you wanted to jump in. Here. I, I, I agree in part with what Marcus says, but in the context of at-risk students, I, I think the Hope County decision and Judge Manning's uh, attempt to present a, a statewide uh, remedy to that problem certainly makes the the sphere of at-risk students, including pre-K students, subject to a, a court Im, imposing some sort of solution if the state has not come up with that solution. The biggest problem with the West Ed scenario was they went well beyond at-risk students to the entire student population in the state. And I think there's a real procedural question as to 
whether that's where we are at this stage of the litigation. But I, I completely agree that it's a statewide application or should be on the at-risk uh, world. And I think it is fair also to, to note that since 1994, the legislature has not pulled together a study. They have not tried to develop a remedy, which is why, you know, I use the word negligence and pretty much why the governor you know had to institute this West Ed report, had to pull together this study. If not, we would be talking about 30 years with no analysis of the real impact. So I, I definitely understand. Legislatures, both Democratic and Republican controlled, have dragged their feet on this issue. I know one of the uh, points from conservatives is, well, that we haven't been part. We're not party to the case. We haven't. But, but they have to. I think I think it's fair to say they have um, they have dragged their feet at different times, both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, Mitch, what can we expect to hear at the Supreme Court hearing this week? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the one issue that the Supreme Court agreed to rehear was subject matter jurisdiction, which is legalese, but basically means did the trial court have the authority to issue the order that it did. And Justice Orr has been talking about this, that the fact that there was one trial in this case years ago, it dealt with the at-risk students. And so I think what he was alluding to, and probably correct me if I'm wrong, is that if there is some sort of statewide order that deals with at-risk kids that stems from the uh, original trial and the ruling from Howard Manning that was upheld by the state Supreme Court now, I guess, 20 years ago, that that is probably something that is on solid legal ground. Going beyond that, though, there is some question. And as I also said earlier, the biggest concern that that we have had organizationally has been the separation of powers issue that even if you get to the point where you say, okay, uh, state, you have not met your obligation. You need to spend X amount of money more to meet that obligation. What has happened traditionally and based on the Constitution has been the judge's order ends there. What happened with Judge Lee's order and presumably was upheld by the previous mm-hmm. state Supreme Court in November 2022 was Not only can a judge say, yes, you have to spend this money, but then he can bypass the General Assembly, which has the complete power of the purse under the Constitution, and say, state controller, state director of budget management, you've got to move this money. But to be fair, it hadn't been 28 months. It had been 28 years. At some point, even if the legislative branch has the power of the purse, at some point, if they don't act, somebody inevitably is going to try to roll it forward, right? That, that's the argument that the plaintiffs have made. But do, and, you, do you buy that? Like at some point, if, 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 if nobody's acting, if there's no kind of accountability on the legislature, whether it's a Republican or a Democratic-controlled legislature, somebody's got to try to inject a little accountability there. Well, that's the argument that the plaintiffs have made. The argument on the other side is the Constitution is clear. And as recently as a year before that ruling in November 2022, the state Supreme Court had ruled 6-1 that the General Assembly has complete power of the purse. Mm-hmm. Governor Cooper mm-hmm. wanted to spend some block fund, block grant funds from the federal government a certain way, and the Supreme Court said, no, it's the General Assembly's job. Briefly to Judge Orr, then over to Jeff. My concern is we're not talking about the quality of education to students. We're talking about procedure and money and constitutional separation of powers. 30 years after the fact, and I would call on both political parties and everyone engaged in this, we need to come together to figure out what we can do to better public education in the state and quick, 
quit litigating over a variety of, I would say, important but extraneous issues to the underlying purpose that Leandro is supposed to accomplish. Um, to come back to uh, um, what Mitch shared about the plan being focused on at-risk, um, the plan that the state put forward, which to Marcus's point, is the only plan that's ever been presented in the 30 plus years of the case um, to address this issue, is actually predominantly focused on at-risk students. So almost two-thirds of the funding, the $5.6 billion that's called for, is to um, expand the NC Pre-K program, which, as Justice Orr said, was focused specifically on at-risk students, and then to support at-risk students when they're in the K-12 schools. Um, 90% of funding for the state uh, for public education goes to personnel, to people. Education is a very human capital intensive endeavor. And so if at-risk students are going to be supported, they've got to have a great teacher in the classroom and a great principal in the school. And so these funds are intended to help um, hire better teachers, pay better teachers, and really provide those resources to our at-risk students across the state. We're here on Due South chatting about the Leandro case, which goes back to 1994, when, if you were wondering, I, I was in the fourth grade. Jeff Coltrane is here, <laughs> senior education advisor to Governor Roy Cooper. Bob Orr, a former associate justice of the state Supreme Court. Mitch Kokai, senior political analyst at the conservative John Locke Foundation. And Marcus Bass, deputy director of NC Black Alliance and a member of the coordinating committee for Every Child NC, which is a project of the Progressive NC Justice Center. They're all here on Due South. So, too, is Ann Doss-Helms. Ann? So when we were talking about the focus on at-risk students, at one point fairly early in this process, Judge Manning created quite a stir by suggesting that maybe the path to this was not to increase overall funding, but to shift funding, and that the, maybe we didn't need some of the extras that were going toward the more advantaged kids, and that a sound basic education was not the same as being prepared for Harvard or Yale. So I don't think that ever went anywhere. Judge Manning had a lot of opinions that he expressed strongly, but... Um, there was literally at one point explicitly spelled out that this could come at the cost of non-at-risk students. Marcus, I want to turn to you. Judge Orr just noted a moment ago, the, my word here, but kind of the grandstanding, the huffing and the puffing and the political um, maneuvering and the, the heaviness, candidly, also of the, the constitutional questions here. Sometimes for me as a reporter in trying to understand this story the last few years as I've been following it, I think I have been guilty, and I certainly think other journalists are guilty of going, uh, oh, yeah, uh, one and a half million kids in public education. We don't talk about them as much. And I want you to elevate them for a moment here in this conversation and talk about what you think, um, you know, a full funding or a change in course here, maybe a diminishing of the huffing and puffing. Again, my words, what that could mean for one and a half million K through 12 public uh, public students, public education students across the state. Well, before we talk about what it could mean, let's really look at what has happened because we haven't had that funding. Um, when you look at the opportunities for advancement in the rural parts of our state, uh, the education indicators are connected more directly to our ability to create thriving jobs and opportunities for folks to live and grow in the eastern part of our state. The census indicators show us every single year in droves, families are moving uh, to more of our urban parts of the state, not because they want to live in an apartment or not have a back 
backyard, but because those amenities, uh, you oftentimes have to give up uh, a sound basic education, the ability to create a sustaining, vibrant uh, family atmosphere. When we think about um, the number of jobs that are sent to the southeast, uh, we have a huge agricultural background in North Carolina. But when we look at technology, when we look at advancements in um, Internet and communication, um, when we look at the fact that at one point in time, the southeastern part of our state was um, the quoted slated to be the next Hollywood. You know, we lose out on those opportunities when we don't provide a sound basic education, particularly in those six counties, but more so across North Carolina. Um, when we think about the fact that year after year, North Carolina continues to fall at the bottom of per pupil spending uh, of other educational outcomes, including teacher pay, the impact of not addressing at the very least the initial plaintiff counties uh, represents a huge uh, drawback in what we're able to produce in our state and the future of our state, frankly. Mitch, I'd be really interested to hear you respond to that in terms of uh, thinking about the lack of funding or follow through on Leandro and the implications and impacts that it has had from an economic standpoint on rural North Carolina. I'm not sure that we really have the evidence that shows how the lack of funding on Leandro has affected North Carolina. Uh, one of the major points here is that this case is too often described as here's Leandro. It's about spending more money on the schools and the legislature just doesn't want to do that. Well, no, the legislature has spent more money on schools. In fact, of the $1.75 billion that David Lee ordered eight days later, a budget was signed into law by Governor Cooper after having been passed by the General Assembly that covered a billion of it. So there is more money flowing to public education. The, the problem is this is a debate that should be happening among the political branches over and over every year uh, about education and the proper way to proceed. And it's been tied too closely to this court case, which, as we heard very well expressed by Justice Orr earlier, has hit on little pieces of the education debate, but in the legal process has only gotten to a certain point that's part of a, a much larger conversation that should be taking place. So if to the extent people know Leandro, they think, oh, it's about education funding and we need more education funding. So I'm for Leandro. Well, that's not really what the case is about at this point. The case right now is about whether a trial judge went too far in ordering a remedy and more concerning than that said after his order, here's what has to be spent, then said, and I'm going to take this away mm -hmm. from the General Assembly until, as a member of the judicial branch, members of the executive branch to move money, which is something that North Carolina has never allowed. Quick reminder here, the state Supreme Court is an appellate court, doesn't call witnesses or hold a trial per se. This is a review of what has happened at lower echelons within the judiciary. Uh, my expectations, it'll be about 90 minutes um, later this week. That's I think they asked for some additional, additional time. time. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've got just a couple minutes left here on the program, so I'm going to kick this to you all. I, I don't know who is best equipped to take it. Um, what concisely are the possible outcomes coming out of this week? And when do we expect a ruling? Justice Orr, do you want to take that one? Well, the as Mitch pointed out, the issues are tied to the jurisdiction uh, of Judge Ammon's order, whether they're subject matter jurisdiction, which, frankly, I, I scratch my head on a little bit in the sense that it, it seems like kind of an obtuse issue. Uh, and, and the other side says this is a vehicle so they can attack on a more broader basis 
what's previously been decided in Leandro. Um, I, I think the the sixty four dollar question is how mm-hmm. narrowly does the court write versus how expansively does it write. And, but I would raise one question for everybody that Howard Manning asked Tom Zyka, who was representing the state years ago. He said, "Who are you representing, Mr. Zyko?" He said, "The state." And he said, and Judge Manning said, "Well, who is the state?" And and if you think about it in the context of major litigation, if there is a huge judgment against the state, does the legislature constitutionally have to be a part of that settlement? Can the governor, who actually was not an official party to the litigation, be the driving force? I, I mean, I, I think there there are a lot of procedural questions that need to be cleaned up. As far as the question about a prevailing expectation on how the court will rule, we're going to wait for a ruling to come. It, of course, remains an open question. There are five Republicans and two Democrats on the bench. It is expected that all seven justices will hear the case, despite there being calls previously for Phil Berger Jr. and Anita Earls to recuse themselves. Earls has previously been involved in this case as an attorney, and Berger is the son of Senate leader Phil Berger Sr., who is a party to the case. I want to say thanks to Andos Helms, Justice Bob Orr, Jeff Colt train Mitch Kokai and Marcus Bass for their knowledge uh, here as we try to better understand the Leandro case, a 30-year-old education lawsuit that is back before the state Supreme Court this week. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. As a reminder, we'll have coverage of the Leandro hearing later this week at our website, wunc.org.